Hi, my name is Summer Babarik, and I'm the president and CEO of Hera Biotech. And Femtech, to me, describes the inclusion of women in all aspects of design, delivery, and implementation of products and services and experiences as it relates to their health. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Summer Babarik, who is the co-founder and CEO of Hera Biotech. Hera Biotech is based out of San Antonio, Texas, and Hera's initial goal is to commercialize a non-surgical method for the definitive and early diagnosis of endometriosis. Endometriosis is an often painful disorder in which tissue similar to the tissue that normally lines the inside of your uterus, the endometrium, actually grows outside your uterus. Despite no longer being inside the uterus, endometrial tissue continues to function in the same way it would inside the uterus. Yeah, that means that it thickens, it breaks down, and bleeds with each menstrual cycle. However, this tissue has no way to exit the body because it's not in your uterus, and it becomes trapped. Endometriosis is estimated to affect 10% of women worldwide. That is 1 in 10. If you know 10 women, you know someone with endometriosis. It takes an average, though, of 10 years in order for women to get the diagnosis. That's because to receive one, you actually have to go into laparoscopic surgery. In the U.S., the annual economic burden of endometriosis due to direct medical care is estimated to be $80 billion. So anyways, a lot of statistics, but it's obvious that we need a company company like Hera, and so um, I was really excited to do this interview. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Summer. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thank you for having me. Yes, definitely. This has been a long time coming. We've been chatting for a while now, right? I know. Gosh, it, it's it been, I think it was like right before pandemic went nutso. And then we were both like, oh, oh well, now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> That's like forever ago. That was a really long time ago, I feel like. <laughs> I know. Yeah, really. But um, I would love to kick off our interview with learning a little bit more about you. Our listeners love learning about our guest background, where you're from, what did you study? Did you have a career before you got into femtech? Tell us about your journey. Sure, absolutely. So I have a very unorthodox like journey to get here. So I grew up in deep South Texas, um, like right on the border. Um, and so that was kind of where I started and I was just a country girl and actually rodeoed, went to college on a rodeo scholarship and then rodeoed whoa, professionally. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> what do you mean rodeoed? Like I thought um, women only do barrel racing. Do, what, do women rodeo? Yeah. Well, barrel racing is an event in rodeo. Okay. So, yeah. What I definitely do? was a, I was a barrel racer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're so cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, all right. All right. 
that's always a fun icebreaker. People are like, what? <laughs> I mean, she's so, yeah. a lie. I mean, that's a great icebreaker. Yeah, I was a exactly. rodeo star. Yeah, for sure. So um, I did pro rodeo for a while and then uh, moved home uh, back to San Antonio and decided I needed to finish up a degree. So I did an entrepreneurship. And um, during that time, I met um, the most delightful weirdo. And now I call him my husband. Um, <laughs> and so that. during my last semester at in college, I was, or my last year, excuse me, I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I um, went into labor and, um, well, they actually induced me. And I was in labor for 26 hours and we could not get this kid to vacate. Like, It was awful. And I wasn't allowed to like get up or move around because they were trying to keep her on the monitor and it was all this. You couldn't eat, right? No, not that I wanted to. I felt pretty full. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I couldn't eat nothing. And so ended up in like an emergency C-section, which was a catastrophe. Um, Had to give me all kinds of medication to keep me from bleeding out, basically. Couldn't feed my daughter after I had her. So after all that, I kind of went, okay, getting this degree in entrepreneurship. And that was horrific. (laughs) there's got to be a problem there that can be solved. And so I kind of started researching. And so my first kind of femtech endeavor was um, I invented a wireless fetal monitoring system that was patches on the maternal abdomen, communicated the fetal heart rate, uterine contractions via Bluetooth and competed in a student venture competition with that, fell in love with women's health, fell in love with femtech. Um, got picked up by a local VC fund after that and uh, spent seven years working with them in uh, due diligence. And I was running um, clinical operations for two of their sister fund companies. And so um, we exited those companies uh, to an Australian company. And um, I took some time off and was like, I really want to get back into women's health and femtech. So Whoa. what so what happened to the remote fetal monitoring technology? So it it didn't work out. Um we found a blocking patent that had just been missed in our our prior search. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's kind of it was like one of those tragic like oh, oh I'm letting everyone and everything down. Like mm-hmm. how am I, you know, but it was great learning experience. I had actually had an amazing investor who had given us a check um, and took our whole first round. And I called him up and was like, I found a blocking patent. I can't take your money and returned his check. And he was like, I don't think anybody has ever (laughs) handed me a check back. And I was like, well, it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, one time I was, I was listening to, I think his name is uh, Jason Kalanis, Kalananis, and he's like a, some famous angel investor and he does all these talks and blah, blah, blah. One time I heard him talking and he was like, yeah, you know, when founders know it's not going to work out, they just take the rest of the money and like go to Hawaii. And I was like, we can do that. Like I did not do that. <laughs> like when oh, I was building my company, I literally wrote out little itty baby, baby checks that were like, sorry, this is 1% of your original money, but it's all that, you know, like I was yeah. like, wow, that would have been a really great, like $20,000 trip, but 
So, so let's just throw it out there and say like, that's the difference between female entrepreneurs and male entrepreneurs. So handwritten letters to about 30 angels, like apologizing for like it not working out. Yeah. Oh, so. it was insane. Like I sent an email to my professor, my entrepreneurship professor, one of my favorite ones. It was like, I'm so sorry. I let down the program. Yeah. She's like, are you ridiculous? Like, yep. Get out of here. <laughs> That's how we, we hold the weight on our shoulders um, for sure. Well, I want uh, one more question about this, uh, this tech. Do you know if today there is these, these Bluetooth enabled things or are women still strapped down? You know, I think we've come a long way. I, I think you've got companies like Bloom out there who are innovating a whole lot in the space. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really depends on the hospital system that you're in. If you're in kind of a big metropolitan hospital that's known for, you know, implementing new technologies, you mm -hmm. probably won't be strapped down. <laughs> Isn't that awful? It's like, here, bite on the stick and have a baby. Like, oh, okay. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it's really exciting, but I think that we've come a long way. Yeah. Cool. So you're, you, you're a, a real entrepreneur. Now you had an idea, you were pitching, you got some money, you returned it. Cause we're good people or silly right. people. I don't know, debatable. Um, and then <laughs> you're going back into women's health innovation. What happens next? So I kind of took the due diligence approach to it. I was like, all right, well, what are all the big places out there that are innovating in women's health? And I, I, Harvard, MIT, you know, Stanford, UC, um, SF, UCLA, all of them. And I was like, um, guys, is anybody doing anything in women's health? And there are a few things. Um, specifically, mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in going into therapeutics. That was what I did um, with the two fund companies. And so I, I kind of wanted to go back medical device route or something of the like. And so there was a, there was quite a bit of therapeutics out there, but I was like, okay, there's just not a lot. Um, and so a friend of mine was like, uh, you are literally next door to UT medicine. Like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I don't know. So I called the uh, university of Texas, right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I always forget that people in Tennessee are like, Oh, Tennessee. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> I love you. But no. I, uh, there was a company called UT health and I was like, Oh my God, like, what do you, and they were like, you know, urinary tract health. And I was like, Oh, okay. So yeah, you see in this sense is University of Texas. Okay. Yes. University of Texas <laughs> health science center here in, uh, in San Antonio. And so, you know, I, called and uh, actually a, a former colleague was there and I said hey you know I'm looking for something he said oh my gosh get here today like I've got the thing for you it's like you know shopping right I was like yeah, yeah let's shop for technology yeah so um I went down and and took a look at um, what they had and uh the two inventors talked to the two inventors of this particular technology and just really the passion from the inventors was there the problem was there. The solution is such good science. I was like, yes, I can do this. Uh -huh. uh, so it was funny. One of the inventors um, is he's just so well-respected in the field. And I mean, was the chair of the department and all that stuff. And he's sitting there and he's like, what we need is someone with a uterus to help us. <laughs> <laughs> no smarter words have ever been said. 
I was like, man, have I got a deal for you? I've got a uterus in spades. (laughs) So it was, it was really fun. Uh, It was really fun. And so we just, uh, we founded the company, co-founded the company together. Um, And what we're doing is the first non-surgical definitive diagnostic for endometriosis that can also stage the disease. So huge, huge, because it's the first time you're going to be able to track progression or, or come up with a therapeutic specifically for endo because you can now track your efficacy. All right. I know when we set up this interview, we were like, we're going to dive deep into endometriosis. So I am so excited to get there. Um, One last quick question is for context here. How long ago was that meeting with those scientists? So we started meeting at the end of 2019. So I think the first meeting was in like September of 2019. And then we culminated the license with um, UT at the end of 2020. So October of 2020. Okay. Awesome. Well, tell us what is endometriosis? Sure. So the easiest way to explain it is the lining of your uterus, which is what's passed every month through your menstrual cycle, um, is called the endometrium, right? So that's just the name of that specific type of tissue. So endometriosis is when that particular tissue is growing outside of the uterus in lesion form, and it can happen anywhere in the abdomen. So they've found it up like on the diaphragm, they have found it down in the bowel, left untreated or without, you know, intervention, it can go so far as to cause like pelvic adhesions, it can adhere your bowel to other pelvic organs, Um, it can cause intense, intense pain, as a matter of fact, that's pretty much what it does, that's the hallmark staple, Um, Mm -hmm. and then it's the number one cause of female infertility, so it's a huge problem. Wow. How does it cause infertility if the issue is outside the uterus? Sure. So essentially what happens is because your your endometrium is growing outside, it's causing all of this inflammation and swelling and disruption in the body. Mm -hmm. And so the common belief is that the inflammation that's happening in that endometrium makes it very difficult for the embryo to implant. Okay. And like... Are little girls born and like that tissue is just already there and like the wrong places inside her body? Or is it like she starts to get her period and then the tissue will show up, it'll go away from different places? Or is it like, oh, I have endometriosis and my specific, you know, issue is it's on my diaphragm, you know, or is it like showing up in different places? Sure. So you are not born with endometrium outside of your uterus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and quite frankly, they know like little to nothing about how this happens or why this disease happens. Um, I know, shocking, I'm sure. Too. I know, I know. And I'm, I'm like ready for you to be like, Britt, nobody knows. Those are great questions. Yeah. <laughs> Good one-on-one why questions. Is, <laughs> why is no one asking this? No. Yeah. Um, so the most common hypothesis is what they call menstrual reflux. So essentially about 90% of women whenever they go through their menses, a portion of that tissue is refluxed back into the abdomen. And it's, it's found a lot. Um, 
like I said, almost 90% of women have this issue. And most of the time, it's not a big deal. Like it's just a few cells and your immune system goes, oh, you don't belong here and we shuffle you out, right? But for women who have endometriosis, for whatever reason, the endometrial tissue is invasive. So when it lands on these pelvic organs, it sets up camp. Holy guacamole. Okay, so... Can you help me comprehend like this menstrual reflux? I've never heard that before. Is that like a real term or are you, did you make that up or is that a real term? No, it's a real thing. <laughs> and actually the first time I heard it was when my inventor was like, oh, well, you know, a lot of women reflux menstrual effluence back up into their abdomen. And I was like, how do you know more about my menses than I do? Yeah. I like, haven't like... I've never, I've done over a hundred episodes. I've done over a hundred interviews. I'm the femtech expert of the world. And I'm like, excuse me, what did you just say? What is, what happens? So yeah, how does it, do we know? I mean, please tell me we know, like, what are you talking? Like, does it get out of the vagina? Like it, does it just go through the cell, like the uterus wall? Like, how does it just like splash up? It's a closed system, isn't it? The uterus? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know. Okay. We don't know. So the really interesting thing about the inventors and their background Mm -hmm. is that they can almost explain this and how this happens based on the gene set that they're looking at and how, how it operates. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go like super nerd out deep. Oh, we love it here. We love the nerd. Okay. So our, one of our inventors, Dr. Bruce Nicholson, Incred- both guys are incredible, but his whole background is in structural biology. And so one of the things that we know now is like when cells come together to form tissue, they adhere to each other in a number of different ways. There's all kinds of mechanisms for adhering cells together. There is channels that occur called gap junctions, right? And originally scientists thought this is just another adhesion mechanism. Mm-hmm. Well, for whatever reason, thank you, Dr. Nicholson, got super interested in these gap junctions and discovered that they're actually the primary means of communication between cells. And there are structural proteins that make up these gap junctions called connexins. And they are the ones that mediate the exchange of information and metabolites and all kinds of stuff between these cells. So Specifically, he discovered the first connection, connection, excuse me. Now we know there's a family of 21. They're named by their molecular weights. So specifically, connection 43 and connection 26 are, are being researched to the nines in oncology because they mediate the invasive behavior of cells. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what we found? Women with endometriosis have a misregulation of these connections. And so not only are they mediating whether these cells are invasive or not, they are also convincing normal cells that lock the system to move apart and almost create a leaky barrier so they can invade outside. Holy crap. Okay. So what I hear you saying, I always love to do this with our scientist things. Like, all right, let me break it down. Tell me if I'm right. Um, or if I'm wrong, essentially, um, our cells are always talking to one another. We're a big, I mean, conglomerate of 
you know, communities in our body and neighborhoods and, you know, systems and cities and whatever. And our cells are always talking to each other. How are you doing? Or we, do you need some nutrition on your side? Do we need oxygen on your side? Like, how are we doing? And those communication systems have been shown, like you said, in cancer to be haywired because cancer is essentially an invasive tissue quote unquote, right? And it's like invading other parts of your body and it's growing dramatically and it's stealing nutrition from the other cells. And what you're saying is that this endometrial tissue that women are (laughs) reflexing back up into their body, for the most part, our bodies are like, get out of here. Like you're not, you don't, you're not, you're supposed to go out of the vagina. Why are you up in here? But sometimes women with endometriosis, those cells have the ability to communicate with their other body cells and say like, oh, no, 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 like actually you're the one who's wrong. You should move over and let me live in you. Is that what you're saying? Right. right. And then they just invade the surface. So there's like that whole seed versus soil hypothesis. Like, oh, do women with endometriosis just have some environment happening on their pelvic organs that is just, you know, receptive to these cells growing? Yeah. That's kind of the soil hypothesis. And okay. then you have the seed hypothesis, which says, no, no, no. These guys were going to set up camp, whether or not anybody was happy about it. Yeah. And yeah. so kind of, you know, and obviously we have to prove this out through further clinical research and that's what we're doing. Right. Um, but we have figured out that, so you've got a misregulation. You were born with a genetic misregulation yeah. and that's why your endometrial tissue is becoming invasive. It's so a it's a genetic link. Yeah. It's like a uterus cancer. It's like, right. Well, I mean, endometriosis is called the non-cancer cancer. cancer. Like researchers call it it that it acts just like cancer. It's called the non-cancer cancer. cancer. Yeah. So the only difference between endometriosis and cancer is that it doesn't grow unregulated. It doesn't grow unchecked and just exponentially. It just kind of sets up shop and, and where a lot of the pain comes in is it still acts just like endometrial tissue. So every month it's swelling and breaking down and sloughing off. And over time, it irritates and agitates the organs that it's landed on. It causes scar tissue. That's what causes the adhesions. The body's immune system is constantly going, what is going on? Why are these things happening? There's things here that shouldn't be here. But yeah, it's just insane. Like, Does it do at the same time as your actual period? Mm-hmm. So it's an estrogen hungry disease. So it feeds on estrogen. And so, um, you know, when you go through your menstrual cycle and your estrogen spikes, that's when this tissue knows, okay, well, now it's my job to swell and slough off and bleed and do all these other things. Crap. Okay. Wow. I am. All right. So did they discover specific genes associated with this? Mm -hmm. So we have a gene panel that's what our assay is based off of. And those connections are part of that gene panel. Um, And so essentially what what it is, is the first shot on goal at discovering a therapeutic to treat it, right? Because once you have a target, you kind of go, okay, there's the misregulation. Now all we have to do is figure out how to regulate that. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really, it's fascinating. And these sort of, these sort of connection things are, have been connected to all sorts of invasive processes. It's not just cancer. So if you think about like placental formation, embryo implantation, those are invasive processes. Those processes are also regulated by connections. Mm-hmm. And so 
if you've got a misregulation, that could be then a further explanation why women are having trouble getting pregnant. Wow. And I mean, not asking you to reveal anything proprietary here, but is there any idea about, is it, do you think it's um, like the small point mutations? Is it like giant chromosomal abnormalities? Like, is it a female only X chromosome thing? Like, do we know that yet? Are you working on it? Do you know, but you can't share it? <laughs> where, where are we at with it? We don't know that yet. Um, as every single one of your guests says, like the funding to learn these sorts of mechanistic things is just not there. Um, So, you know, these are things that we want to learn, but those are R&D projects. And as a company, obviously our first goal is to get this to patients and then we can start going into all of the mechanistic. Okay. Now here's how this would change it. And here's how that would change it. And this is what we could do um, or identify in this subset of women Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Yes, we 110% need more money. Um, I'm really excited for our summit coming up. We're actually doing this interview will come out post summit, but we're doing it beforehand. Um, and at the summit, we actually have a, a panel on femtech and active Congress because we need a lot of governmental assistance to get femtech up and running. I just learned the other day that um, there's actually no Institute for Women's Health in the government. And so if you apply for grant funding for women's health, there's actually a center for women's health, but they don't have their own budget. And so right. all women's health grants have to go through other institutes. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. oh my God. Okay. Um, so, all right. If, if this is going to be this genetic test and y'all are still figuring that out, like what are, you know, what's the current solution and like, what are you guys trying to offer that's different? Sure. Sure. So essentially right now there is no diagnostic for endometriosis other than surgery. So you have to undergo a laparoscopic procedure and 50% of the time that fails to confirm endometriosis. Oh, wow. Can you break that down for our non-surgeons? Like, what do you mean by laparoscopic? And like, I don't understand. Sure. So, so obviously there's like major abdominal surgery and that's essentially where a physician or surgeon is cutting you open and, and taking a look, right. Then you have laparoscopic surgery, which uses these points, right. And very similar to, uh, you had your guest, um, Kim Rodriguez on from mm-hmm. Assessa Health very similar to that procedure. And they're using that procedure to treat uterine fibroids. Um, And so they put in these two points uh, and they're basically looking for something to biopsy or excise from the abdomen. Uh, It's literally the where's Waldo approach to diagnosis. They're just looking around like, like magic school busing it into your abdomen. Exactly. That's exactly right. (laughs) And do they like take a sample and they're able to like test the tissue to be as if it's endometrial or not? Absolutely. And so essentially with endometriosis, the other the other caveat to the surgery and why it's so difficult. I'm not ragging on doctors here. It's very heterogeneous in presentation. So it looks different every time and it comes up in a bunch of different places. So imagine telling a doctor, I need you to go into an entire abdomen and find this tiny piece of tissue that looks like maybe it doesn't go there. Can you do that for me? Uh, (laughs) Like, yeah. So, I mean, it's an impossible task, right? Yeah. Um, unless the woman is is very far along, like stage three, stage four, where she's got 
you know, a lot of lesion formation, maybe even pelvic adhesions. And so what they do is they go in and biopsy tissue that looks like it doesn't go there. And that tissue mortality, like that's not insignificant. They take, they'll take a lot of tissue because they're trying to give you a confirmed diagnosis. Then they're sending that to a lab that looks at the tissue and goes, oh, that's endometrial tissue and it shouldn't be wherever you got it from. So yes, she has endometriosis. You just said that there was like stages. So is that like Mm -hmm. medical terminology that there's literally stages of endometriosis? How many stages are there and what are they? So there are four stages of disease. Um, So you have stage one through stage four. Stage four is obviously worst case scenario. I mean, it's staged just like cancer, right? I mean, you've got a lot of lesion formation, you've got adhesions happening, you're, you know, you're, you're in big trouble. I mean, it could even cause like ruptures and things like that. Can, if it's can adhering. Die from this? Can women die from this? I mean, they can't die from endometriosis itself, but they could certainly suffer a complication that would then, mm-hmm. you know, end up in a, a bad situation. Um, and then stage one, good luck finding a lesion. But it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it's not big. It hasn't grown big enough for you to see it yet, right? Mm -hmm. And so the really crazy bit about this is that stage of disease is not correlated to pain. So you can have a stage one person who is in intense pain. And like crazy enough, 68% of women that have endo require opioids to control their pain. Wow. Insanity. And these patients are at a much higher risk of mental health issues because nobody believes them. They think they're crazy. You know, they have all sorts of comorbidities because what happens when we have menstrual cramps that are, you know, we hunch down and we clench and it can cause all sorts of other pelvic floor issues uh, as well. And so there's this whole host of things that happen to women who have endometriosis that don't have anything to do with the actual endometriosis. And then, you know, one of the things that gets ignored a lot in endo, and I always try to bring this in because we have allies out there and we need to listen and respect them and appreciate their allyship. Partners of women who have endometriosis suffer the disease as well. Like 33% of women who have endo that are in a partnership, that partnership eventually dissolves. I mean, it's, it's, if you've ever been with somebody who's been in intense pain all the time, chronic pain is horrible. So, I mean, it's just like, it's I mean, not just one person. Mm-mm. That's why we say women's health is everyone's health. Cause it's like, we don't just birth women. We birth little boys too. We don't just live with other women. We live with men and boys. We, uh, us, if we feel well, we're better mothers. If we feel well, we're better in the economy. We're better shoppers. We're better bosses. We're better board members, right? And we're better lovers. If we, whether or not we have a masculine partner, feminine, like whoever we're into, like, uh, like there's huge, huge repercussions of like, um, there's actually a whole, uh, startup that's all about like sex after cancer, because your libido is shit and like your vagina is all dried up and like if you had any kind of pelvic area cancer and so yeah partners are definitely bearing a big grunt of all of this as well especially I mean if this is a monthly thing this is not just like well you know when the season changes and I have allergies you know once a year it's like (laughs) no like this is a we're going on a 15 20 day cycle here you know 
Right. And women with endo have longer cycles. So oh no, like don't a, tell me. Oh my God. No, that's just you're cruel. getting like a that's just yeah, cruel. You're getting, yeah, it's just mean. <laughs> but yeah. So I mean that's currently how you get diagnosed with endo. And then the staging of the disease is uh-huh. literally, yeah, that kind of looks like a stage two. Yeah. Very subjective yeah. Um, and depends on the expertise and skill of the surgeon. And what are the current treatments? So there are no treatments for endo. There are treatments for the symptoms of endo. So pain control, um, obviously diet. um, And then there are some therapeutics that are being applied, but they're very, um, they're, they're estrogen suppressors, right? We're putting women into early menopause so that they don't have to deal with their endo. And I mean, like a really random statistic that I just like, it broke my heart was 120,000 hysterectomies are performed every year in the US because of endo. Like they're so desperate to get rid of the pain. They're just like, forget it, forget it. Just just take the whole thing. Like, which is just horrific. That is absolutely hurt. And that's like a major surgery and it affects your entire body. I mean, you're going into menopause. Um, this isn't like, Oh, my gallbladder, what's it good for? It's like, no, this is like (laughs) for real, you're like really big deal. Um, so now this is actually making bringing up for me. So if the, uh, endometriosis is because of the like menstrual reflux, if the woman gets the hysterectomy, um, does that actually help it? Um, does it help by not making more of these refluxes or is it that the tissue that's there is already there and it's not moving and like, they're still in pain. So what's going to happen is her hormone makeup's going to change, right? So she's not going to go through menses anymore, which means the lesions that are there, if they're not able to find them, they're going to behave themselves because she's, she's not menstruating Uh anymore. Uh So you know, if she's got major pelvic adhesions and things like that, then obviously those are going to have to be resolved. Mm-hmm. However, conveniently, a hysterectomy is going to take a lot of the things that those would affect. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if she has a lesion on her diaphragm or something like that, the lesion will remain, the tissue is going to remain there. But with her hormones being taken completely out of the picture, this estrogen hungry disease. Is- got it. Got it. Um, and so you're talking about this like genetic diagnostic, right? Like mm-hmm. how would um, a genetic diagnostic be able to tell you what stage you're in? Cause normally with genetics, it's like, oh, you have it or you're predisposed for this or you're not, but it usually can't show you progressiveness, but unless tell me if I'm wrong. Sure. So essentially the reason that we feel like this particular um, connection issue has escaped detection is you have two cell types that make up your endometrium. You have stromal cells and you have epithelial cells. And so anytime anybody's researching anything, the first thing you do is kind of bulk tissue analysis. And you look at the whole picture and go, does anything weird happening anywhere? Then you kind of get sucked down your silo of, oh, that looks weird or this looks weird. So our guys looked at bulk tissue analysis, nothing's happening, but they come from specialties where single cell analysis has revealed things that bulk tissue analysis does not. Mm -hmm. And so what they did is they separated epithelial cells from the stromal cells and then looked again. And what we found was they have almost a perfect negative correlation. So where these expressions are going down in stromal cells, they're going up in epithelial cells. And it's like, nothing's going on here if you're looking at us all together. But when you separate us, 
it's like we are raging (laughs) (laughs) they balance each other out it looks like that they do when they're together but separated you're like whoa these are on different sides of the seesaw exactly and it's the expression of that gene profile relative to the expression in a normal cell if you will Mm -hmm. that gives you the staging so obviously the higher you're expressing it in your epithelial cells they're more invasive they're more profuse and so that's how we're getting our staging oh my god when can people like expect this to be a test you know is and is it going to be like an Everly well test one day? Like, it, you know, yeah. like one day we're going to look back and be like, these didn't used to exist, you know, like what's the That's future? Right. <laughs> yeah. So right now we collect the cells directly from the endometrium. So it is an in-office procedure right now. It's, I equate it to placing an IUD. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable. We take some tissue it's sent to our lab, and then we'll be analyzing that tissue. Um, we will be commercializing as an LDT, which is exactly what Everly Well does. So that means they have a central lab that does all the testing, which keeps us out of you know a lengthy FDA approval process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we anticipate running two clinical trials in a 12-month period um, right after we get funding. And then um, after that, we can launch out of our lab and get it into the hands of patients. Um, So that's really what we anticipate doing. And the other thing that's important to know, like especially from the fertility aspect of this is if you have endometriosis, it doesn't mean that you can't have a baby. It just means we need to know that you have endometriosis so we can make adjustments. Like Women with endometriosis, they don't manufacture enough progesterone for long enough. So you have people like Amy Buckley, Dr. Buckley over at the Prove Test who can show you how long you're making progesterone and, oh, maybe you need to be on a progesterone supplement or maybe we need to put you on a mild anti-inflammatory in order so that you are then capable of becoming pregnant or seeking fertility interventions let's make sure this isn't going to block that success before we drop tens of thousands of dollars on IVF. So it's, and so that's how we plan to get to market the fastest. Then we'll circle back and then, you know, proceed through an FDA approval, but it'll be with revenues being generated and the the test will be in the hands of patients. Oh my gosh. I mean, I could literally talk to you for all day. Let me ask you one last question. Okay. About the, um, your company and this technology, are you finding that investors are saying like, this is niche or not needed, or are you getting received well by investors? I get received really well by women investors. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I will say we've had a, a couple of, of male investors who have been, you know, very interested and understand that it's a big problem. Um, but you know, the thing that like, really grinds my freaking gears is when we've heard from some investors, uh, well, we just don't really understand why it's important to diagnose it early because you can't treat it. And I'm like, bro, if your balls were blowing up once a month and you couldn't have sex, like, hello, you would want to know why. Yeah. Even Even if you couldn't specifically treat that. And that's just such a ridiculous argument. Like, we don't have a silver silver bullet for a lot of cancers. We still diagnose them so that yeah. we know what we're dealing with yeah. and so that we can at least try to intervene. So, I mean, it was just, you know, you get those ridiculous comments, but 
you know, I think, I, I do think that we get received well by a lot of people. Endometriosis affects enough women that I think male investors kind of go, oh my gosh, yeah, my daughter is suffering with that or my, you know, my wife. So yeah. hopefully we'll, uh, we'll make a few more connections and they'll, you know, we'll roll over into the next stage of this. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, I have two last questions for you. And um, seriously, I'm blown away. I'm shocked. I'm also not surprised all the things that I usually am on the show. <laughs> so my last two questions are, uh, we have a lot of aspiring femtech founders that listen, a lot of university and graduate students or people who are at big corporations and are like, screw the system. I'm going to go help women's health. What's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? So for me, I'm the mother of two daughters, right? And I think age-appropriate gynecological care and products is like a thing. Like, I think that needs to happen. Like both ends of the age spectrum need specialized care and specialized products for their bodies as they are now. And we just cater to the middle. So I think- Tell me more about what you think young girls need. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember having that awful experience. Like, first of all, nobody getting their period is like, oh, yay, you know, but you get it. And then your mom's like, all right, well, I got to take you to the OB-GYN. I'm sitting in this office with all of these women. A lot of them are pregnant and there's these posters on the wall about, you know, estrogen therapy and all this stuff. And I was like, where am I? Like, yeah. what is happening? Yeah. And so it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. A 15 year old, or I mean, girls are having their periods even younger now. 12 year old girls don't need to be sitting in a waiting room with pregnant women and pictures of, you know, pregnant women on the wall and showing what's going to happen when this baby comes out. Like, okay, let's just mm-hmm. let her figure that out when she's ready to figure yeah. it out. So I think, and also young girls have smaller parts, like for the most part. Like, can we please make, I mean, I remember like the speculum. I was like, I don't know what kind of lifestyle you think I'm leading, but um, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, I totally agree with that. I've shared this on the on the show before. I had a cyst on my ovary when I was 13, maybe 14. So I didn't really didn't have my period even for probably even a year at that point. And, um, I was getting all this pain and then eventually was in, you know, I went to the hospital eventually and, um, had cysts and needed to have surgery. So I go to the OB-GYN for the first time in my life, my mom's with me, but there was like this weird, like, should my mom be here? Should my mom not be here? I kind of wanted her there. Cause I was a kid. I was like, I don't know what this doctor's saying surgery, you know? And like, but I also was like, mom, don't look, you know, and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. And I always share my biggest concern, it was the first and only surgery so far that I've had. Um, my biggest concern was whether or not I should sh- shave my pubic hair because I didn't oh want God, the OB-GYN to judge me. And I, now as a woman, I'm like, oh my God, like that woman has seen vaginas in every shape, form, size. Mm-hmm. She does not care about some 13 year old if she shaves or not. But like, for me, that was like the biggest night, you know? And so like, how can we have advocates, adolescent advocates, right. For these types of things where I could have asked them or, you know, like, you know, maybe they already have, maybe, you know, if we took a survey of 13 year old girls who has gynecological visits, maybe that's a top 10 concern. So they could automatically like give these girls like, Hey, if you're concerned about that, don't be, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I just think it's important. And, you know, from the standpoint of someone who's not having children right now, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I have a busy schedule too. I understand this baby decided to come into the world right now, but that doesn't mean I'm going to sit here in a paper gown for an hour. Like, (laughs) yeah. You know, so I just, I think that there's a lot that can be done there. Um, And I, I think that, I think we can disrupt it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Our last question is what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Um, women controlling capital period, the end, like male investors. If you want to invest in femtech, cool. Love it. Appreciate it so much. Give that money to a woman working for you and let her invest it. I mean, done. Like, It's just hard. Like, I think women are more able to take on problems that are not their own and internalize those problems and prioritize them. I'm not saying that guys can't do that. It's just something that we do almost every day in our life. And that's maybe not second nature. And there's also that whole social culture around like, well, you don't talk about her period or her vagina. And, you know, Mm -hmm. did she just say uterus? I don't know, you know? And I'm like, okay, I I get it. Like, you don't have it, but if you want to talk about your testicles or your penis, or, I mean, I can do that too. (laughs) I think that there was influenced by the me too movement where men are like, well, I don't trust myself to not say sex or shit. And I don't know enough about this to not say sex or shit, because I'm just going to go based off of like what my parents said, I don't, my father said, my bros say whatever. So it's like, liability wise safer for them to say like, I really support this, but also like, I'm not going to invest because that would require me to like talk about it more or be on your board. And like that has liability because I don't even trust myself to talk about women's bodies in an appropriate way. That's a hypothesis right. I have. So yeah. give it to women. I don't know. Oh, yeah. We can give talk about vaginas without offending each other. So Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, I think it's great. You want to allocate a portion of your fund to women. Beautiful let a woman run that section of your yep. fund. It will just be more comfortable for everybody. It will. It will. hundred percent. Wow. Summer, you're incredible. This is amazing. Thank I love you. science. I love women's health. I love talking about okay. uterus, like all of the things. This was so great. Um, best of luck. Can't wait to uh, help you do whatever you got it. Whatever's next. Let us know how we can help you. Will do. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to my interview with Summer Baburik. She's the co-founder and CEO of Hera Biotech. Learn more about Hera Biotech at herabiotech.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, please consider becoming a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month. You can do that through our virtual community. By becoming a Fem Pro member, you can go to Femtech Fundamentals, our bi-weekly webinar for founders for free, and you get access to the recordings of all the previous ones as well. While you're on the website, femtechfocus.org, subscribe to our newsletter and consider becoming a monthly donor since Femtech Focus is a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Alrighty, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.